Hey, it's David Pluff. Tuesday, Thanksgiving week. Real treat this week. Uh, we're going to be joined by Tommy Vitor. Now he's a worldwide podcast celebrity, uh, one of the leaders of Crooked Media and hosts on Pod Save America. Uh, he has a new podcast series on Iowa. It's going to be a six-part series uh, that's now in the Pod Save America feed. And I highly encourage you to listen to it because the most important thing happening right now in the world, <laughs> in my view, not just in the primary is Iowa and what's going to happen there. And, and Tommy's going to go deep there uh, with experts, with folks who are on the ground now. He's walking around with organizers. It's great. So Tommy is someone who, before his podcasting renown, uh, started with Barack Obama. He worked when he was a United States senator. So back in the very early days after Obama got elected to the Senate in Illinois, uh, left the Senate office to go to Iowa. He became our spokesperson in the Iowa caucuses and spent a year out there uh, working indescribably hard, doing great work, uh, then moved on in, in different posts through the campaign and ended up in the White House as a spokesperson for the National Security uh, Council and was in just an integral part of our national security and, and foreign policy team. Um, so Tommy, I think, is going to give us some really great perspective on Iowa, given all the time that he has spent out there recently uh, and his history. So we're going to go deep in Iowa with him um, and also talk a little bit about the race in general, some of the patterns he's seeing, talk about foreign policy and how the candidates are or are not smartly leveraging um, some differences they may have there. Uh, and also just talk about the state of the general election. Uh, Tommy is, you know, spends every day with Lovett, Vitor, and Pfeiffer, uh, former colleagues of mine, all who can get uh, pretty antsy about things. Uh, nervous about things. Uh, Tommy can too, but I think he's probably the same voice there. So get his sense of the reality of the race. Um, so um, I think you'll really enjoy our conversation with Tommy Vitor. Tommy Vitor, thanks for joining us on Campaign HQ. Thanks for having me. So I want to talk to you about impeachment, a bunch of things, but I want to start with your new podcast series, On the Ground in Iowa. And Tell me what you're trying to accomplish with this, because obviously folks around the country are paying close attention to the race, generally Iowa specifically. Uh, what are you trying to accomplish bringing people a little bit more under the hood? You know, so first of all, I lived, as you know, I lived in Iowa in 2007 for Barack Obama, a spokesman for him in the caucuses. So, you know, I think because for a lot of reasons, I have really fond memories of this time. Obviously, it's because we won. I think part of it is because I was a decade younger and that was cool. <laughs> um, but it's also, you know, you went to a bunch of events with him like I did. Like you saw Iowa caucus goers take the process really seriously, ask tough questions and make him and all these other candidates better at the job. So I wanted to help people understand the stakes in Iowa, why it's so important in the primary, why it propelled Obama to the presidency. Uh, and you were gracious enough to help explain that to the listeners. I want to talk about the history. Like Iowa, it's not in the constitution that Iowa goes first. It's actually a weird fluke of history. So we walk through that, talk about the rules. And then, um, my favorite part of the whole show so far has been getting to spend time with the young field organizers, one on the Booker campaign and one on the Warren campaign to help people understand what they do uh, and how important organizing actually is. Because you come away from spending time with these kids so inspired, so hopeful about the future. 
that it just makes you feel better about politics. So that's a big piece of it. And then later down the road, I'm going to talk about all the reasons people think Iowa going first is a bad idea, the demographics of the state, the way the caucuses work, and then talk about some other ways you might be able to structure a primary. But, you know, I just love the state. I wanted to do this little mini series. It's on the Pod Save America feed, so you don't have to subscribe to anything new. And um, it's been a blast. I think it's a must listen for anybody who either is following this closely or is pretending to follow closely. Now, what? how many episodes? Five total. So we're going to do four in a row. The first one came out last week, and then the second one is out on Tuesday. And in the first episode, you had some of those organizers. So I'm curious. So you spent a full year of your life in Iowa. You know it better than most. But what did you learn? Like, what surprised you, if anything? Maybe nothing did being on the ground this time. A couple things. I, I mean, one you know, a lot of it still is the same, right? There were things I talked about in one of the first interviews I did with Paul Tews, who was our state director, who was a fantastic guest on this show, by the way, like brought tears to my eye listening to Paul talk about the caucuses again. But, you know, the the concepts of how you build a grassroots campaign, how you organize yourself out of a job by getting volunteers and precinct captains, like all that stuff still applies. But this cycle, the mood music is so different. I mean, in 08, People were pumped about Obama. Bush was in the rearview mirror. Like, they were open to possibilities. This time around, everyone is terrified. All they talk about is electability, and no one really knows what that means. And on top of that, like, the complexity that goes into a campaign field this big can't be understated when you're dealing with all the discussions around viability and caucus math and actually trying to get delegates out of the state. And also on top of that, and I don't know how nerdy you want to get on this, but there have been a bunch of pretty significant rule changes this year. So it's hard to figure out how the press is going to play these results this time because it will actually be the first time in in history that the raw vote totals are actually released, for example. Right. So I'm going to actually ask you to put your pundit hat on for a minute. But let's go back to Iowa because you mentioned you were the spokesperson of Barack Obama, that's like one of 12 things you did uh, in Iowa, to be fair. Everyone does more than what it says on their business card. <laughs> right. And you were just out there. So it might be interesting for folks to understand, like, okay, if you're working in communications in one of these presidential campaigns in Iowa, what's your job? Why is it important? Like, what's that entail? And that, you know, I know that's changed yeah. a little bit uh, just as digital has become more and more pronounced. But, you know, talk a little bit about that and, and how important it is. Sure. Well, so, I mean, the, the cool thing was, you know, you're on an island, you know, and you have tons of time where the candidate comes in and you you own Barack Obama's time for that day. So the thing we really tried to do with him was, you know, build relationships with the most local, local papers you could find. So, you know, it, it sort of came from the same philosophy that I think informed our broader organizing approach, which was if you went to a small town and there were two weekly newspapers there, we would carve out five minutes for Barack Obama to talk to them one-on-one or two-on-one at the end of an event. And what it told them was, one, it gave them an opportunity to ask their questions. And by the way, those questions tended to be far more substantive and (laughs) policy-focused than the things he would get (laughs) at the big press avail. Yeah, he never complained about those, did he? No, he loved those. He always liked talking to local reporters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and like, you know what, they weren't always easy questions. You know, you'd hear about the Patriot Act or ag subsidies or all these tough things, but, you know, it made him a better candidate. And also, these guys are human beings, right? Like, you're a journalist, you live in Decorah, Iowa. Someone comes and shows you respect and is friendly to you and and gracious with their time. It's going to get you on the front page. Like it bodes well for um, your coverage down the road. And then the other thing that's kind of fascinating about 
being in that role is, you know, there's there's far more senior people back at headquarters who are talking to journalists all day long, right? Like Dan Pfeiffer, you, Bill Burton, like all the all the national folks. But when the big time reporters come to town to visit Iowa and like, you know, see what's happening in the Iowa caucuses, they give me a call and I get to do a little dog and pony show for them. So, you know, I'll never forget like the editor in chief of the New York Times came to town and, and Jeff Zeleny, who's now at CNN and Adam DeGurney, who's a, was the heavy hitter, uh, New York Times political reporter at the time, wanted to bring him by the office. And it happened to be that weekend when we had like three former statewide elected officials doing an office opening. And one of them was speaking from the bed of my, you know, Ford 1996 stick shift F-150 truck <laughs> that I bought with two grand in cash. And it was just this like really fun opportunity to, you know, be creative in all the things we were trying to do organizing wise and press wise. So like, I just, I, I love the experience more than almost any job I've ever had. So I'm curious. So when I had Jen O'Malley on the pod a couple of weeks ago, she, in talking about, you know, what happened to Beto, you know, one of her reflections is it's just harder to kind of bunker into a state these days. It's, it's as important as that is, it, it has become more of a national primary. Do you think that if we were running today, so that strategy of spending a lot of time with local reporters and really burrowing in, could we get away with that today, do you think, in this environment? I think you can. I think you can still get those hits, talk to the weeklies, like get the press you need to get locally. It, it is my sense, though, that there's just too many candidates this time. And so if you are a, a hot shot on you know, the state central committee in some county, at some point you need to decide, you know what, I'm only taking calls from these six candidates, right? Or like, I'm only having coffee with organizers from these campaigns. And because that national narrative of who is in the mix, who's on the debate stage, who's on cable news at night, like that's infecting everything in a way that I don't think it impacted us as much back in 2008. And like, I think that's where Beto really struggled because he unfortunately limped out of the gate. And I didn't realize then that that was going to be unrecoverable. But, you know, I think what happens was it, it leads to a winnowing function where people aren't just aren't giving you a look if you're not perceived as top tier, you know, so it, it, I feel for them. It was a really tough outcome. Well, you know, you obviously have to follow this race closely um, for your day job at Pod Save, but you were just on the ground super intensively in a way that, you know, most people who are commenting on the race haven't. You've got Iowa experience. I'm just curious. So I'd love just, you know, your sense about where you think things stand and what folks should be watching out for over the last 10 weeks. Sure. Well, so what's interesting is if you look at some of this polling, I still think there's two thirds of the caucus growers are willing to have their minds change. So there is a lot of fluidity in the race. And it's also true, though, that like the Bernie people, his number has sort of hovered in the same sort of levels, like 15%, say, but uh, his folks don't go anywhere, right? Like his support is rock solid, 90% retention when people are repolled. Warren has gone up and she's dipped a little bit. And the, I think the folks that she has gained and lost have been the people paying the most attention. And I think that speaks to the fact that like that Medicare for all fight and the way she was targeted in some of the debates did a number on her. Now, the Pete surge, like I could see that coming in August when I was there. I saw him speak at the, at the state fair 
on a Tuesday at 2.30 p.m. And he just had a monster crowd. And they had a huge in- uh, injection of money. And I went over to his office beforehand to spend some time with his staff. And you could just see, like, they had a big team. They were hyped up. They were doing tons of field. And then, you know, at the LJ dinner that night, they just blew it out of the water organizationally, right? Like, they had a whole side of the of the stadium that we were in just going nuts when when Pete spoke. And he's been on TV early on. So, like, I think... I would be very worried if I were another campaign and no one was doing something to arrest Pete's momentum. But he's also put like $2.3 million worth of TV up. So it's, you know, like there's some basic things he's been doing right and doing early because he just had the cash. But the question I had for you, Pluff, is like, did anyone run a negative ad before caucus day or negative mailer even? Certainly not negative ads. I mean, there was not traditional negative. I think there was positioning, right, off the other candidates. But right. um, no. I mean, if you recall, right before caucus, the big skirmish was, didn't John Edwards have some super PAC that was spending a bunch of money on his behalf? Yes. And it's crazy to think that was like a part of our last week. I think I was in, I remember being in your office or Josh Ernest's office, and we were doing a conference call like with national reporters attacking John Edwards for his, you know, outside dark money, which seems... You know, I think you're right. I mean, that now, of course, Hillary did, I think, got in some difficulty because she it wasn't advertising. But you remember, she launched some attacks on us that backfired. Yep. Um, but I'd love your thought on this. I mean, you said it's and I, it's a big field. It's hard. to It's really hard to break out. The last debate, I thought, was like one of the gentlest political debates I've ever seen. Yeah. What's your my view is I'd like to see this toughen up because whoever comes out of this is going to have to face, you know, the kind of the best street brawler we've seen in politics in a long, long time in Donald Trump. Like, I want to see how these people take shots to the face, low blows, you know, uh, how they handle it and how they counterpunch. What's your view on that? I totally look, it's time, guys. You know, (laughs) it's time to mix it up. I mean, I think everyone stays nice through the Iowa caucuses because of the way the Iowa caucus process works, if your candidate isn't viable, that means that you can't caucus for them. They can't get delegates to that precinct. So that means the other campaigns will try to convince you, if you're a Steve Bullock supporter, for example, to come to their side. So it, it, it it's structured in a way that I think keeps it nice for a while. But I totally agree with you. Like I think back to 2008 and sometimes shudder to imagine that the Reverend Wright tapes come out in the general election versus the primary. And I do wonder right. how we deal with it then. You want this stuff vetted. Right. I mean, the Obama-Clinton, I think it's fair to say, once we got out of Iowa, it got nasty. Brutal. I mean, I think um, people talk about Sanders-Obama. I mean, the things I said in that race, I'm sure you said. I mean, it was tough. So it did eventually. But I think the point you made, though, is 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 important as we talk about this because you said, you know, back in 08, people wanted to win, but Bush wasn't running. As you said, there was a little more optimism. People are deathly afraid that we may nominate someone who can't be Trump. Yep. So I think Democratic primary voters may be a little bit more willing to say, okay, let's get some folks in the boxing ring here, <laughs> you know, uh, and and see how folks deal with it. I, I just think the dynamic is much different than that race. I totally agree. Like, look, I don't think Pete was in any way, I don't think he was negative. I don't think he threw low blows, but he went after Warren's Medicare for all proposal and the lack of a financing plan pretty hard at that debate. And he did not see a dip in his numbers. He went up pretty substantially. So it does 
seem like there is room for growth if you're seen as a fighter and if you're tough. Like, I think I'd actually put Amy Klobuchar in that same camp. I mean, she's still very much tier two, but she's still, you know, she's hitting that like 6% margin. And there's some sort of cultural affinity I think people have for Minnesotans in Iowa. And like, she's someone you could see catching on, but like, they got to start throwing punches at each other or else the dynamic's not going to change. Right. So let's talk about somebody you and I know uh, well, uh, Vice President Biden. So uh, my view right now is his stock is trading lower than it should. So with all the facts being, you know, he's lost a bunch of support. <laughs> he's not raised the money he needs. And I think that could be a real crisis going forward. He's underperformed in debates, not all interviews, many interviews. So all that's baked into the cake. That being said, if he can somehow find a way to be alive heading into South Carolina, when he may not, and do what he needs to do, he's probably at that point back to being the frontrunner. So, how do you how do you evaluate Biden, and kind of what his pathway both is and needs to be going forward? God, I mean, it's so loaded for us, right? Because you 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 like him so much as a human being. Like everyone has a story about Joe Biden just doing something inexplicably kind for either you or a stranger that you'll never forget, and. It's hard when you see him struggling at debates or seeming defensive. You know, I, I don't know if you read the piece in The Atlantic about, you know, how he may still be dealing with stuttering and, and that could be a part of these performance yeah, problems. Yeah, amazing you know, piece. Yeah. yeah, and it's incredibly, like, empathetic, deeply human piece. And, you know, that has sadly been lost in our political discussion for so long. But also, like, the the hard-headed side of us, right, is, like, we have to win the general election. We just can't, you know, in any way uh, make excuses for ourselves. We have to compete. So, I mean, I, I think the question I have in my head is, will Biden pull out of Iowa if he thinks he's looking for like a third or a fourth place finish? Because he's never done that well in the state. It doesn't seem like they've gone all in in terms of staffing or focus or strategy. And you could see a scenario where he thinks it's sort of a wash for the first few candidates Maybe he makes a play in uh, in New Hampshire, Nevada, but then just really counts on that strength in South Carolina. And you know, as you know better than anybody, like just keeps racking up delegates all the way to the convention. But I mean, that sounds like an incredibly miserable strategy. <laughs> right. It may be the only one available to them, but miserable though it may be. Yeah. Right. So I mean, I guess if you were running the Biden campaign right now. Would you pull out of Iowa if you felt like the writing was on the wall and you're looking at a third or fourth place finish? Well, I'd be worried. You know, I think third is survivable because, you know, he's already in polls now in third or fourth, right? My worry would be, is there a chance he goes to fifth? You know, if Klobuchar, for instance, were to gain strength. So I don't know. It's hard to be, if you're a national frontrunner not too long ago, to be ducking states. Yeah. So, uh, you know, this is, it probably is a pick your poison, arsenic or hemlock. But, (laughs) you know, I think he's got to find a way to get into the top three in Iowa. Um, You know, try and get in top two or three in New Hampshire. You know, maybe then he gets top two Nevada. That should be a better state for him. So I don't, I think that's the thing we don't know is like, what keeps Biden alive with strength heading into South Carolina? And I think you're asking a smart question. Like, I don't think fifth in Iowa. I think if he comes in fifth in Iowa, which sounds crazy now, but it's not out of the question for honestly, like any of them, to your point, two thirds of the voters are fluid. And historically, folks get hot in Iowa at the end. So Mayor Pete's gotten hot now. I think the question for him is, has he approached his ceiling? If not, how much more does he have to grow? And I think with all the very, very important discussion around, you know, can he attract African-American vote in South Carolina and beyond? 
which is critically important. That's not going to matter. At this point, I think he needs to win Iowa. I think if Mayor Pete doesn't win Iowa, having gone out to a lead like this, I think you could see air coming out of that balloon pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, he he may... Warren and Pete may feel like they peaked a little bit early, although both of them have time to to move around a bunch. I, I totally agree with you that Biden is an undervalued stock because every time he gives a speech, whether you think it's good, bad, or ugly, there's a piece of it where he talks about the risks we face in the world, the damage Trump has done, and how it's not time for on-the-job training. And I think that's an incredibly compelling message. It's not inspiring. It's not hopeful, but it's, it's, there, there's a lot of truth to the fact that the next president has a ton of work to do because of the damage done. And he's the one with the experience to do it. Now, maybe that's, you know, maybe that will be the best proxy for an electability argument that anyone can make. And folks will ultimately come home because you do see voters in polls, see him as the safer choice. Right. So, Tommy, you, you, you know, developed a lot of experience in, in the White House, the Obama administration on national security and foreign policy issues. I'm curious. You just mentioned Biden. And I think that's where he's clearly been strongest in debates just because he is very comfortable talking about foreign policy. Yeah. Um, he tends to be more precise. I'm curious. I mean, Tulsi Gabbard has her own bizarre, uh, you know, national security argument she's making. But it doesn't seem to me that any of the, you know, major Democratic contenders have really found their voice or a way to, I think, grab the public's attention around national security and foreign policy. I mean, it's obviously we should not do what Trump does, you know, and and annoy our allies and embrace dictators. Like, they're all saying that. But I I don't know. Am I missing something there? Like, I think there might be an opening for somebody. And the reason I ask this is, A, is there one and could it matter in the primary? But B, I think that, you know, against Trump, it's not going to be enough simply to say, hey, you know, he's all in with Putin and Kim Jong-un. You know, we're going to embrace our allies. We're going to restore order. That's good. And I think that will drive vote. But I think there is, you know, I think there's an opening here for somebody to fill in the picture a little bit there. And I think this is one of the reasons Obama won. People forget that. It was our differentiation with the field on national security and foreign policy issues, probably even more so than domestic issues that I think really gave us some separation. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, being able to say that Barack Obama opposed the Iraq war when others made the wrong decision was an unbelievably powerful argument to be made to every voter in every venue every time. I don't see a current contrast between any of these candidates that's that significant. I mean, the one thing that's interesting that I've heard lately is, you know, Favreau for for season two of The Wilderness has been doing all these focus groups with like Obama Trump voters or, you know, you know, sort of all these interesting subsets of swing voters. And one of the things he said jumps out over and over and over again is they feel embarrassed about the way Trump has made America look around the world. So there is like a restoring dignity, restoring standing argument that I think is compelling. But like nobody's really focused on this stuff. I I think Bernie deserves a lot of credit for doing a ton of work to bone up on foreign policy matters generally and put forward an interesting platform from 2016 to 2020. And indeed, you know, he's been out there like this is a a very niche thing, but he is the only candidate I've seen who called what happened in Bolivia to Evo Morales a coup versus, you know, more hedged terminology. And that's something that gets noticed on the left. So maybe that gives him an advantage with some of those like Bernie Warren voters that are out there. But there's no big issue. I mean, look, the problem for Biden every time he he really tries to trumpet his foreign policy experience is that Bernie drops the hammer and says, yeah, but you voted for the Iraq war. And it's just right. very tough to come back from that. Right, right. And if Mayor Pete were somehow to, to navigate this and become our nominee, 
How much of a political asset do you think his military experience will be vis-a-vis Trump? Well, it's fascinating, right? Like he's not afraid to talk about it and he's not afraid to use it as part of a defense to an attack. Like I think he he you know told Beto O'Rourke that he doesn't need to be lectured by him about you know weapons of war, right? And there's sort of a, a compelling moment in the debates early on. I mean, the thing I keep thinking about is Seth Moulton's candidacy. And it probably didn't catch on for a number of reasons. But if you were to go to the Democratic Party in 2004 and say, create me a presidential candidate in a lab, it would be like a young congressman from Massachusetts who served four tours in Iraq, went to Harvard, had incredibly courageous medals uh, awarded to him with distinction that he refused to talk about on the campaign trail, et cetera. But like for some reason he didn't catch on. And I I think it's in part just because foreign policy matters and national security hasn't been a part of the election. Now, I think if it's Pete versus Trump on that stage, Pete can make it a bigger part of the conversation and talk about all the ways Trump has failed around the world. He's failed to, you know, deal with North Korea. He's, you know, failed to defeat ISIS. He's, you know, abandoned the Kurds, et cetera. And I do think like that experience will give him a pretty impressive weapon to use against him. Yeah. I agree with that. So you work every day surrounded by bedwetters, uh, Favreau, Pfeiffer. Pfeiffer's more of a, <laughs> I'm he's one of more dark. Well, I don't know. I wouldn't put you in the same category. So with that big caveat, like I just, and you know, as you mentioned, John Favreau um, was out uh, doing some really important work around his next wilderness series. So spending time with the voters that would decide this election. You're in Iowa. And even though that was very much focused on the primary, you know, gives you a glimpse in into this general. Where do you stand? Like on the concern level, how concerned are you that Trump may win a second term? I'm deeply, deeply concerned. I would say the odds are that he gets reelected right now because of the power of incumbency, because of the money, because of the electoral college, because of the lack of growth among the sort of voters we need in states like Wisconsin. I, you know, like, look, I, I don't think it means we can't get there, but I just think everybody knows that we don't win unless 90% of the people who were rooting for Hillary last time but never lifted a finger decide to get into the arena. And I'm cool with bedwetting as long as it is coupled with that message of like, get off your butt and go do something. Right. No, I think it's going to take a, a heroic and Herculean effort by all of us doing more than we ever thought was possible to win this thing, because uh, I agree with you. I, You know, it's interesting. I'd still probably rather be the Democratic nominee than Trump just because of his approval ratings, just because I think there are enough people out there that if they have a decent alternative in their mind, and, and they may not view our nominee being that that we can win this thing. I think we're going to get massive turnout, but I think he'll also generate great turnout. So it is way too close for comfort. Um, yeah. And, you know, whether it's 55, 45, one way or the other, I mean, that's scary because it is completely plausible, you know, basically less than a year out from the election and that we're going to have eight years. And those eight years, I think, are not a doubling of the distress. It's almost hard to to mathematically, I think, capture the devastation a second term will will, you know, not just visit this country, but the world. Yeah. I mean, I I still think people need to know, like, I'm really glad 
that we did the Mueller report and we're talking about Russian interference in our elections. And I'm really glad that this impeachment trial is happening and that we are are focused on Trump's efforts to you know get the Ukrainians to interfere in our elections. But I also think people need to understand that the voter suppression is happening right now as we speak. I mean, you're seeing hundreds of thousands of people purged from voter rolls as part of nonsensical, like, quote unquote, maintenance by Republican secretaries of state all around the country. And that's why the Crooked Media side, we've been working so much with Stacey Abrams in Fair Fight because they're trying to put voter protection teams in place to fight them and, and take them to court and do all the things we need to, like, allow people, you know, to get to the polls. But I don't think all of us have priced in how much voter suppression is happening and is going to happen over the next year or so. Right. Well, your work with Fair Fight, it's been very impressive. And you guys have obviously raised a lot of money and drawn attention, which is great. Do you buy, by the way, so whether it's voter suppression, we see now the impeachment inquiry, you know, it doesn't matter what any of the witnesses say. Uh, Every Republican in Congress ignores it. Trump obviously does not believe uh, in institutions. I think, you know, if he could become president for life, he'd like to do that. Like, how much do we have to worry that this isn't just another election in your view, that that if Trump gets a second term, you know, we may not it may beyond just not recognizing ourselves like something fundamentally could change that we never get back? Oh, I think that it is an existential moment for the country. Here's a, here's a little example. So I complained about this on our mailbag pod. Like the last thing Obama talked about with Donald Trump was North Korea and their efforts to build nuclear weapons and build missiles that could target the U.S., right? So Trump has been focused on it and he did this idiotic summit and nothing's happened. We're, we're almost two years later and they're building more nukes. They're building more missiles. They may not be testing them, but things are getting worse, not better. At the same time, Trump is trying to extort South Korea and and try to make them pay 400% more than what they currently pay us to station US troops on the peninsula. Like those combined behaviors plus an ascendant China could peel apart our alliances in the Asia Pacific region for the long term, forever. And I, I don't know how you get that back. Same thing with these judges, right? I mean, What's the stat? I think he's named a quarter of the judiciary over the past three or four years. I mean, I don't know that we'll ever win another court case if it's allowed to happen in a second term, right? So it's like there are these truly, truly existential challenges that speak to the character of our country, our security, and like the nature of the United States. Well, those of you listening to this while you're traveling to see your loved ones, I know this could be a huge bummer, but... (laughs) Uh, you know, you can still enjoy your cranberry sauce and stuffing, but I think we all have to stare this in the face, Tommy. I agree. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as we know from 2012 and, and studying all the prior presidential reelects, that power of incumbency is so pronounced. And we've never had anybody this obsessed with getting reelected. We never had anybody start this early. We've never had somebody spend this kind of money. And quite frankly, for all their, you know, and, and Trump is obviously, you know, a dangerously um, childlike sociopath. Uh, he's a brilliant marketer. Right. Uh, and his campaign is filled with brilliant digital marketers. So so for those of us who expect them to run a terrible campaign, I think we're going to have another thing coming. Well, Tommy, thanks for your time. I, I want to encourage everybody. Um, Tommy's uh, series on Iowa is in the main Pod Save America feed, so you don't have to subscribe. It's a great window into the only thing that matters now. I, I just want to stress this for people and why Tommy's show is so important. The debates matter, but from my standpoint, 
right now they only matter in do they affect Iowa or not. Right. <laughs> Obviously, fundraising matters, and you know polling that may come out uh, outside of Iowa is interesting. But what matters is the organization on the ground. Are people putting names in databases that they can turn out on caucus night? Because ultimately, you don't necessarily have to win Iowa. Although I, I think there's some candidates that probably do in this race. But if you really perform badly, history suggests that's almost impossible to recover from. So what matters now is what's happening in Des Moines and Davenport and Dubuque and Decorah and Algona and Spencer, places Tommy knows well. Not all of you know this. So (laughs) this podcast series that Tommy has done, I think, will bring you deeper into Iowa. Um, I think Tommy's right. One of the great things about it is going to be the staff on the ground. Uh, you're going to learn firsthand how they're going about their business and and what our primary voters and caucus attenders are looking for. So, uh, Tommy, I think it's a great contribution to folks out there who are following this race so carefully, whether they've you know chosen a a candidate yet or not. Um, so, I'd highly encourage you all to listen to it, and uh, uh, it'll it'll be fascinating <laughs> to see. Do you? The last question before I go, Tommy. Yeah, do you yeah. think that you know you mentioned two thirds of the electorate is probably fluid out there? So when does this become in your mind? I mean, I could even make the argument it's really not till like, you know, second week of January that the race really begins to lock in. But what's your sense of that? Like, when do you think we'll, when do you think things, people begin making decisions, we begin to see patterns that we can take to the bank? I think you're right. I I think early in January, they'll start locking in. And I think what's interesting about this caucus versus 2008 when we were doing this is uh, the Liberty and Justice Dinner is the is sort of the biggest event of the year. That was in November. Uh, and for us, it was a similarly timed event. But the, the caucus is a month later this year than it was for us. So there's another month of running room for these candidates. But I agree, you know, February 3rd caucus night, like I think people want to start locking in in mid-January. And then you know, that's when things could start to really people start mixing it up because it's your last chance to shake free some of these voters. Plus one thing I just want to say is like, I don't, I don't mean to be such a downer to your listeners. I will say though, that the Iowa part of these campaigns is the most fun and the most inspiring and most exciting part of any race. So if you need a reprieve from being scared about the general election, listen to a 20 year old field organizer, tell you why she packed up her life and moved to Iowa to support Elizabeth Warren. And it'll inspire you all over again to knock some doors and give a couple bucks and and be a part of it. Well, no, I want to second that. No, listen, the truth is we should be realistic about the chance that Trump could win. And we should be realistic about what that should mean. To me, that's just being truthful, right? But we all around us are reasons to be inspired, right? And so I would uh, encourage all of you who are listening, um, if you have chosen a candidate, um, and you don't live in Iowa, think about going out there yes. um, because you'll both help that candidate. Um, you can go to a local campaign office and, and help them reach out to folks and, and volunteer, but you will be inspired. Tommy's exactly right. You know, my favorite uh, moments in politics really in my long and ugly career <laughs> were the time I spent with the young Iowa kids in 08 because, yeah. you know, for me, I, I'd go to bed at night and just saying, I just don't want to let them down. I know that's a Barack Obama felt too. So, yeah. uh, and a lot of these people are going to be future campaign leaders. A lot of these kids on the ground in Iowa will run for office themselves wherever they're from. They'll start non-profits. I mean, so yeah, at times of doom and gloom, there's literally, um, you know, by the end of this, Tommy, there'll be thousands of kids in Iowa mostly yeah, yeah. who are some of the selfless, smartest people you'll you'll ever want to come across. And, and the fact that they've devoted some of their life to public service, which will hopefully become, you know, a lifelong commitment to them is, is couldn't be more exciting. Yeah, totally agree. All right. Well, Tommy, I hope your Patriots beat the Cowboys and then lose every other game after that. 
uh, and then lose to the Eagles in the Super Bowl uh, in a rematch. Um, I don't think that's going to happen, but that's what I'll be rooting for other than beating Donald Trump. Yeah, we're good at losing the Eagles, but I don't want to talk about that. I'm a huge fan of the show. Thank you for having me. It really was a blast. Thanks, Tommy. Happy Thanksgiving. You too. I want to thank Tommy for that time. Great conversation, as I assumed it would be. Went deep into Iowa, um, and I really encourage you to listen to his, uh, his podcast series on Iowa. You cannot follow this primary without really understanding what's going to happen in Iowa, the history there, what the campaigns are up to. So I think it's a great service. You know, my take on the race from where we are today and really informed by a lot of the conversations I've had is, one, I think Joe Biden's stock is, is trading a little bit low. Um, he's clearly uh, lost some of his um, poll position and, and momentum and has not performed strongly in debates. That being said, you know, he's hanging in there, um, uh, you know, in Iowa, you know, uh, in second or third place. So um, he needs to strengthen. I'll come back to that. But, you know, still performing pretty well in New Hampshire, big lead in South Carolina, big lead in a lot of the states to come after that. So my view on this for Biden is if somehow he can find a way to be you know, credibly alive in South Carolina and come out of South Carolina on the win. I think he has to win South Carolina. You know, he's probably then the front runner for the nomination now. Um, that's a tall order because if he comes in fourth in Iowa or even fifth in Iowa, if someone like Klobuchar were to come up and clip him, um, you know, you begin to lose momentum quickly. That deceleration can be quite painful. But at, at somehow, some way, if he can find a way to do what he needs to do in Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, um, so that he's got a credible chance to win South Carolina, um, I think he would leave South Carolina then into the rest of the calendar uh, with a lot of momentum. You know, Iowa is is right now the story is Mayor Pete, um, understandably so, because he's gone from nowhere uh, to a pretty significant lead uh, if these polls are to be trusted. And, you know, from what I hear on the ground, doing a really great job with relational organizing, so not necessarily just talking to people off uh, voter lists or people who've caucused before, but but asking everybody who supports him to talk to everybody in their life. Um, other campaigns are doing that as well, but I think Mayor Pete does have a, a chance to find folks who, who maybe not uh, haven't participated in the caucuses but are just motivated by him. Um, so I think the challenge for him is obviously to keep this momentum going. Uh, it's, it's 10 or 20 lifetimes between now and the Iowa caucuses. He's showing some strength in New Hampshire. So, um, you know, he's got to build on both of those, but, you know, he's gotten some separation from the field according to polls. So I think everyone's like, well, can he get African-American and vote in South Carolina and beyond? That is a critical question. But first thing first is he's got to make sure, you know, he monopolizes and builds on this momentum he's got in Iowa and New Hampshire because if if he were to decelerate and lose momentum, um, that's a very dangerous thing in this process to have gone, you know, kind of out to the lead uh, and then to, to fall back. Um, that's usually pretty hard to arrest, particularly for someone who's new, doesn't have um, you know, long relationships. This is the first time around the track. So I think um, they definitely need to work hard and do everything they can to build up their African-American support, um, but they can't take their eye off the ball. None of that's going to matter uh, if he doesn't come out of Iowa, New Hampshire. At this point, you might argue with a win and a win, but certainly a win in Iowa uh, and a second place in New Hampshire. Yeah, you know, I think Sanders and Warren are both obviously, you know, uh, showing strength uh, in Iowa and New Hampshire and all the states basically. And I think the question there will be, does one of them, and it's not like 100% of their voters are interchangeable, but does one of them really get an opening on the other? Uh, for a while there, it looked like Warren was going to get complete separation from Sanders. Some of the recent polling has suggest that they're coming back 
uh, more uh, in line with each other. And so, so much of this race is going to be about the ordering. We've talked to many of my guests on Campaign HQ about this, and it's a it's frustrating because as a campaign, you really can't control that. But the ordering in Iowa, who's one, two, three, four, or five? Uh, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina is so important because let's say South Carolina, if Joe Biden doesn't win or doesn't even come in second, maybe he's out of the race or or he's still running, but he's clearly out of gas. You know, who's really left with strength? I mean, if, if Harris or Booker end up somehow coming out of South Carolina with some strength, a lot of that African-American vote in the southern states and all over the country may more naturally gravitate to them. If the folks who are alive after South Carolina in a non-Biden scenario are, let's say, Mayor Pete and Warren and Sanders is still alive, but but trailing those two, that's going to be fascinating um, because I think the real battle there for Latino vote and African-American vote is wide, wide open. Then, of course, you have Mayor Bloomberg sitting out there, and we've never seen anything like this before. So someone who's worked in politics is super interested in this from a political science perspective. Somebody skipping the first four states, spending maybe hundreds of millions of dollars, not just tens of millions of dollars, to be better funded in all the rest of the states, to have better organization, more advertising. You know, how's that going to work out? I don't think we know. I mean, I, I'm I'm skeptical that, you know, he's going to sit there in early March and, you know, be able to get into the 20, 25, 30 range when you've got other candidates who are doing well and winning and getting additional momentum. Uh, but I'm fascinated by it. I am very excited to see uh, that while he's preparing to mount a primary challenge, um, you know, they've announced they're going to spend uh, tens of millions of dollars on voter registration in battleground states, uh, states like Texas as well, which may be a battleground, too early to know, but needs a lot of work to help us up and down the ballot. Um, spending uh, 50 to $100 million on anti-Trump advertising in the battleground states. So I understand how that's going to help him with his message that he's the best person suited to take on Trump. But even in a scenario where, you know, Bloomberg runs and and doesn't put it together in the primary, the spending that he's doing and the work he's doing is incredibly important. I think we should all be uh, grateful for it and hope that we see more of that. Um, So I think that's a really, really big development. Obviously, you know, we have impeachment hanging over us. um, And, you know, what's interesting to me is impeachment um, historically is, is a hallowed and historic thing. You know, it's if you've studied Watergate or the Clinton or even Andrew Johnson, you know, um, these are things that that not just penetrated when they were happening, but but you know we're still talking about them decades later. I think in part because of social media, where everything seems big and therefore nothing seems big, uh, because the Republican Party, uh, really with one exception in the House, um, with Justin Amash, um, you know it's almost like whatever comes out in these hearings, and I think they've been devastating to Trump. Um, doesn't matter. So you know we're going to have a vote in the House. All likelihood, they're going to move forward with impeachment and send it over to the Senate. We'll have a Senate trial and, you know, barring some, you know, huge surprise, he's going to get acquitted. And then we move on with a campaign. And so, you know, I don't think we know enough yet to know how is impeachment going to play in the election. I think impeachment had to be pursued because I think the the actions here, the crimes here are so significant, I think far more significant than what we saw with Nixon or Clinton or even Andrew Johnson. So um, this was right to be pursued. You know, we have a rule of law in this country. No one uh, is above it. But in a scenario where Trump's acquitted, I, I think it's too early to know how this is going to play out. I think there are some voters in battleground states, true swing persuadable voters, who are kind of tired of all the Trump circus. They're exhausted. They want things to settle down in Washington. And impeachment probably looks like a circus. And Trump's to blame for it. And who knows what the next four years 
uh, will bear if, if this guy wins re-election. So I think one important argument we're going to have to make in this general election is look at all the things he's done, the way he's behaved. He seems uh, to not care one whit about our institutions or the law. What's that going to be when he doesn't have to face the voters anymore? I think we should all be very scared about that. So I think with some swing voters, maybe this tips him over the edge. But on the other hand, I think Trump's going to use this, um, you know, very uh, smartly and aggressively to build his operation, to find new volunteers, to find new donors, and even to register new voters. Um, so I think it's very much an open question when we get to election day, how much we can say impeachment mattered or, or not, and who benefited by that, which is fascinating. But we do know it is going to go on in January, uh, certainly in the Senate, maybe even bleed into February. And so that's going to affect the senators who are running for president. They're going to be captive to Washington. And it will obviously dominate a lot of the political coverage. So it shortens in a way you know, I think the general election, which may be to our benefit because we don't have our nominee on the field until a few months after that. One other thing I, I want to reflect on, there's some polling out this week. And again, we always should caveat, we don't know how accurate polls are, but it's pretty consistent with both what I think professionals who know Wisconsin well think and some of the pre-existing polling, you know, that shows that of Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, um, Wisconsin is strong as a state for Trump of those three. And so as we think about the general election, all of you in Wisconsin, uh, I think, who are committed to beating Trump really need to, to really double down and think about what you can do next year. Can you become a precinct captain? Can you become a volunteer leader? Because it's not crazy. And again, we're going to have to work really, really hard to win Michigan and Pennsylvania. But it's not crazy there's a scenario where we get Michigan and Pennsylvania. And we're on the doorstep of getting Trump out of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And he holds on in Wisconsin. So to me, we have to turn Wisconsin into a Manhattan project. We've got a great Democratic chair there in Ben Wickler who's doing great work organizing campuses and, and really uh, building a great organization. But he and, and his team are going to need a lot of help. It also means states like Arizona, North Carolina, maybe Florida, we'll see where that stands as we get to the general election, have to be in play. We simply cannot come down to a scenario in October of next year where it's all down to one state, as important as Wisconsin is. So we have to do two things. We got to put other states in play and try and win them to give us a little margin for error. But we got to find a way to get Wisconsin uh, right. And, you know, I think Wisconsin is a state where Trump is going to drive enormous registration of unregistered voters who look just like Trump's base, and he's going to drive up turnout. Now, we have a great economic argument to make in Wisconsin. Wisconsin is already technically in a manufacturing recession. Uh, his ridiculous trade war th with China, the way he's executed it, has hurt the rural economy there. All the issues that will hurt him elsewhere, his character and lack thereof, health care, the deficit, you know, the tax cuts that have benefited the wealthy, uh, hardly anybody in Wisconsin. All those are going to be great uh, arguments for us. But I think we have some acutely strong arguments to make in Wisconsin. So I think that should not scare you. Um, we should uh, take that information on board, uh, that Wisconsin is going to be harder than we'd like, but we have to then find a way forward in Wisconsin. So as you think about the general election, um, if you listen to this show, you, you know that I and most of my guests are pretty sober about our prospects. Uh, we think we can win, but it's going to be hard. Tommy Vitor uh, today echoed that. Um, but we have to stare the reality in the face. And the reality is there's going to be no shortcuts against this guy. The Electoral College uh, is going to work to Trump's advantage this time, um, as it did last time. And we're not going to have 15 battleground states and we only have to win three of them. We're going to have to win a decent percentage of the battleground states. Um, and I think the, the polling out of Wisconsin should just serve as a wake-up call. Um, that we're not going to get any breaks here. Um, we're not going to get lucky. 
We better assume Trump's going to run a really, really strong campaign. It'll be a much stronger campaign than the one he ran last time. And they're going to try and maximize every vote they can. So it just means we're going to have to outwork them and outorganize them and outhustle them, but understand that this is going to be a really, really tough general election. Uh, and I think those numbers in Wisconsin, you know, just once again brought that into stark relief. So, you know, I think everyone should enjoy their Thanksgiving, maybe while you're you're traveling uh, on plane, train, or automobile. You can listen to this, and and you'll love the conversation with. I'm sure you love the conversation we had with Tommy. Uh, but take a couple of days off uh, because it's going to get really intense. I mean, before you know it, um, Iowa will be here. Before you know it, South Carolina will be here. Before you know it, Super Tuesday will be here, and before you know it, the general election would be here. So you know, as you enjoy time with your family and reflect on all the things you have to be grateful for in your own life, spend a little bit of time with your friends and loved ones, also talking about your plan for this election. Are, what kind of financial ability do you have to contribute to groups uh, and candidates? Are you planning to volunteer in the general election? How are you, you going to use your social media platforms to push out positive message and share uh, why you think Trump needs to be defeated? Can you create some viral content? That doesn't have to be the province of professional artists anymore. You can put together a meme or a poem or um, a video, uh, and it can whip around the country uh, and be effective. So I think we all need to step back and take stock of what role we can play in this election. And remember that, you know, this is for our kids and, and even kids who haven't been born yet. We have to go to fight for them to make sure that this Trump nightmare comes to an end because eight years of Trump uh, is not just doubling of the damage. Um, I think it'll have a compounding negative effect for decades, uh, not just here in America, uh, but around the world. But with that, I want to turn it over to one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this election, uh, my 11-year-old daughter, Vivi, who has some thoughts for all of you listening out there. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs>